Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in university in the U.S. and Germany. We talk about the rate of change in our current world, and according to Ray Kurzweil, we anticipate 20,000 times the rate of technology change in this century than we saw in the last. As leaders, that means we need to continually innovate how we lead to just keep pace with the technology changes. And for those of us who are interested in getting ahead of that trend and really leading the transformations, that means we need to be continually updating how we lead to be truly effective. So I am delighted that our guest today is David White. David has held the position of Chief Information Officer since February of 2012 for the Battelle Institute. He and his team are responsible for strategically aligning and advancing corporate application development, infrastructure platforms, and development initiatives across the enterprise. A key component of this position entails leveraging the new and emerging trends and concepts to more cost-effectively provide business solutions. So as we look at the rate of technology change, David is one of the leaders in this space, helping us put uh, raw technology into business practice. So I want this Voice America series to provide valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders to help them prepare to lead their organizations in these dynamic times. And that means that we need to deliver to you, our listeners, useful information that you can act on immediately and going forward, either changing a behavior or changing a mindset. So I invite you to find something from our conversation that you can immediately act on. And I also talk about shifting mindsets. David's going to share a bit of how he thinks about things. And as leaders, part of our responsibility is to continue to update our leadership algorithm or thinking algorithm. So as I talk about mindsets, understanding how David thinks about things is foundational for each of us as we update how we think. So as an IT leader and someone who works in technology, the soft side of what we do is a significant contributor to success. You need a diverse set of skills, including a heavy dose of soft skills to be successful as a business leader who happens to be a CIO. And I would say for leaders across the range of senior leadership roles, we still need to understand our technical skills and keep those current. And even more important becomes building these soft skills because that is as leaders we lead and to lead effectively we need those soft skills so david thank you and let's start with a little bit of what is the patel institute so people understand who you are Sure, uh, and thanks for uh, inviting me to participate in your series. Oh, you're welcome. Battelle Memorial Institute is a technology organization headquartered mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, but we have a national presence in the United States, and, and at times we have had a global presence uh, with offices across the world. Within the last five to six years, kind of contracted and, and really focused our, our attention to the continental U.S. However, we do have uh, employees and uh, different projects that are outside the U.S. Uh, but what is Battelle? And why is it a memorial institute? 
Battelle was founded not by Gordon Battelle, who we um, have um, his namesake, um, but actually, unfortunately, it was founded upon his death. And um, when Gordon Battelle, who was an industrialist in, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, died, his will formed the Battelle Memorial Institute. So his fortune was used to uh, start the organization. And uh, upon the death of his mother, she also willed her fortune to starting the, the Memorial Institute. Battelle started in 1929 as an organization to do research. And uh, Gordon Battelle was an industrialist and in, in, into mining. And he really wanted, had a, a vision of using science to make the world a better place. And so that was kind of the, the very start of the, the organization. And um, from its humble beginnings, uh, we've now evolved into an organization that has two main lines of business, what we call contract research and development, uh, where we do research and development in a very broad uh, range of categories, mm-hmm. um, everything from medical and health research uh, to development of armoring for tactical vehicles for the Special Operations Command. So it's a pretty broad range of offering that Mm -hmm. we have out there. The second line of business that we have is we do laboratory management or management and operations for the federal government and specifically for the uh, Department of Energy. Uh, We currently manage six national labs. Mm -hmm. Um, Five of those are DOE labs. Uh, one for the Department of Homeland Security, and we most recently were awarded the Los Alamos National Lab, which we're hoping to take on management uh, later this year. So that congratulations and Thank very you. exciting. And so for our listeners, this is deep science, basically. Absolutely. So in that context, and then overlaying where we are now in our country, Half of the population has learned that they have a president um, who's not the one we wanted. The, the other half has the president they wanted, and they didn't like the last guy. Correct. So, so the reason we bring that up is probably one of the most polarized time in history, and that leads to people feeling disengaged because we all go to work. And how we interact with one another, that civility seems to also have decreased across the board. So the question, what can we do individually to take some control and make greater impact in systems that are dysfunctional? And that was what you and I said we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so... There's a lot of conversation going on now around diversity, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's defined in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, diversity of thought, diversity of uh, racial mix within your teams, diversity mm-hmm. of lifestyle, mm-hmm. uh, social economics, um, all of that is, is defines diversity within your organization. And what we're finding is that uh, diversity within your organization is beneficial in providing or producing a better product uh, for your internal use, whether you're um, developing things for corporate use or for your clients. And so as we think about what's going on in society today and how do we come together to make the overall good, uh, the overall societal benefit better. Um, you have to value everybody within the, the mix and the formula. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that when there is inclusion, the whole group uh, benefits and moves forward. Where you don't have that, you have underperformance within your organizations. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've actually seen um, empirical evidence where there's underperformance even at the, um, with companies that are measured by their stock price. 
In fact, when we talk about the the leadership qualities of Leader 2050 or Leader of the Future, which really is now and forward, one of the things we talk about is innately collaborative, and we define that as as soliciting multiple points of view. So diversity of thought, which often comes in different body shapes and colors and experiences, or socioeconomic. Absolutely. And, and and that's one way that you get to, you can, we can be very clear as on the fact that we want diversity of thought, but how do you get diversity of thought? It comes from experiences mm-hmm. and you're going to get diversity of thought from the experiences of, of someone who, who, who is not um, at the same economic level that I may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to bring a different perspective, a different thought process. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be more frugal because they are not used to spending at the same levels that I may be used to spending. The same thing is true when you have people that come from different different uh, backgrounds, different geographic locations across the Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. All of these things are valuable as you have this conversation, and that's the key. You Mm -hmm. have to have a conversation. It makes um, no sense to bring in diversity if you're not going to listen to these folks. Well, and as much as it's easy for me to list that on our list of leadership characteristics, it's hard to integrate different points of view. I think most of us want to hear we're right and go on and get the work done, not hear the 12 different ways of looking at a problem, which requires then a different set of skills to synthesize and also, and something you pointed out earlier, to keep people engaged. How do I pull parts of your point of view but reject others, create a solution that doesn't look like anyone's point of view, right? and still have people feel like they contributed, not like they've been discounted? Yeah, and that's a good point. So, I mean, if your goal is only to have the conversation, then I, I call that analysis paralysis, right? Mm -hmm. We're just going to talk and talk and talk and not really get to a viable solution. So you have to synthesize it to something that you can actually execute or put into action. And that is a a, um, unique skill, right, to to be inclusive, to to listen. But at the same time, you have to muster people in a single direction to say, we are going to take components of each one, Mm -hmm. everybody's thoughts, Mm -hmm. but this is the path forward. Now, for the folks that are on your team, you have to get on the same page. So when when I make a decision, even though it may not be what you wanted, it may not be mm-hmm. what they wanted, but it is our decision and we're going to uh, move forward with this and you have to get in line with that. Everybody has to march behind that leader mm-hmm. once you make a decision and then be part of the success of that mm-hmm. uh, implementation. And it's often not what the leader wanted either. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be flexible enough to pivot, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I've had situations where I've gone into a a meeting with a clear idea of this is what I wanted and Mm -hmm. come out with, you know what, that makes sense and I can actually um, admit that I didn't have it all thought out Mm -hmm. and let's accept that we're going to go in a different direction. It's still going to move us forward, but, you know, I'm not not always the smartest person in the room. Well, the smartness comes differently not having the right answer, but being able to do that unique skill of synthesizing. Absolutely. absolutely. Otherwise, it's window dressing. Yeah. Synthesizing, facilitating the conversation, mm-hmm. but again, not getting into to the point where you're, you're paralyzed by all of the conversation yeah. and you can't make yeah. a decision. Yeah. In fact, I had a conversation this morning, and I, and I often say the leader of the future, it looks more like a scientist. So... I make the smallest decision I can as close to the point of action as possible, and I run it like an experiment to the extent I can. Sure. You don't buy buildings that way. We'll build the first floor and decide how tall it's going to be later. But that ability to make 
small decisions and evaluate as we go for many things, that works. Absolutely. So it's interesting. I believe that one of the aspects or the components that have made me successful in my career is the fact that I haven't always been in technology. I actually spent the first 16 years of my career in finance and accounting. Ah, okay. And so I have a pretty strong background understanding of that world. And so now that I'm in technology and have to understand how we're going to support different corporate functions, I get it. I mm-hmm. understand how to do a, an accounts payable transaction or general accounting or billables and project mm-hmm. costing. I mm-hmm. understand how to do these things. And what the value that I bring is uh, marrying that transactional processing that we have to do with the technology solution. And now it's becoming even more, not really complicated, but more automated with the introduction of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to these types of systems. Well, and that could be a whole nother interview, but I'm curious, is there a one minute, how do you see AI impacting your immediate workforce in the next couple of years? I personally see um, there's a lot of upside to AI and machine Mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, I think it's still fairly immature uh, for the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I would say my gut is telling me um, probably another three years, five years max, Mm -hmm. um, before we see a broad adoption and takeoff of AI within the workplace. When that happens, it could have a pretty significant impact on corporate operations, back office um, uh, transactions, that type of thing. The jobs that are now being done by account clerks and um, that type of function uh, Mm -hmm. really could be displaced by bots in the future. I interviewed someone a while back who runs a company that does this so of course the they are would be leading the industry but he said we already deploy portions of machine learning in our work and it's fraud detection sure and not that we have sentient machines, but that we have a machine that continues to learn an algorithm and improve itself. Correct. And so what that's the immaturity. So these mm-hmm. types of applications will allow you to identify something to hand over to a human to finish the transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exciting for many of us that someone's taking, for those of us not so detail-oriented, it's exciting that a machine can learn to, to do some of this. Yeah. It would be terrifying if my entire identity was on, based on how well I processed very detailed information, and a machine could take my place. Yeah. So it, a machine can much more efficiently look at um, thousands of transactions and see the p- potential patterns and then give that information to somebody to make a decision. I don't think we're ready for the machine to make the decision yet. Which is interesting as we look at autonomous vehicles and yeah. watch that unfold. Yeah. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We are joined today by David White, the CIO of Battelle. Let's move into the topic of culture. And so we've talked about large-scale change and some of the things happening in our broader community. What have you seen that has served as a driver of success with regard to culture supporting change? So there is a uh, probably overused uh, cliche that culture eats uh, strategy, strategy uh, all the time. Unfortunately, it's, it's very well true, right? So the culture of an organization really is the heartbeat, the lifeblood of how well the organization is going to mm-hmm. operate. 
that is also true for large projects, right? Mm, so yeah. as you develop a project, you become kind of a small entity amongst yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the way that we've done large projects over the last 10, 15 years is to segregate the team into mm-hmm. a separate operating kind of environment. Yes. And you focus on that project and mm-hmm. you basically create your own culture and how you're going to operate. And then that uh, operational efficiency is really driven by the shadow of the leader, you know, mm-hmm. what the leader wants, how the leader operates, how they want to operate, uh, how they want to manage the team is really going to be upon them. And then the mm-hmm. team is going to kind of operate from that perspective. If you have a, a, a leader that really is not open and inclusive in the way they're working, mm-hmm. your project could have problems. I've been involved in a couple of very large projects. And if you have a very well managed project with a very good leadership uh, acumen, it's going to be one of the best fulfilling projects you've ever worked on in your, in your mm-hmm. career. We are currently within our organization working on how we can actually change the culture to one of inclusion, but also we want to really change the way that we work with each other and bring in a little bit less of a culture where you actually feel threatened by having a, making mistakes. Mm-hmm. We'd like to see people try things and uh, to do that in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that people are accountable so you're not doing things that are fraudulent, but we definitely want to see people uh, reaching out and doing things that may be out of their comfort zone that actually might m- move us forward. And so we want to uh, create an environment where it's safe to do things like that. We can actually coach you through where there may be issues but if there is a problem it's not the end of the world so how do you change the culture what are the steps you're taking because again we hear people talk about this but then when it comes to taking actual concrete actions sometimes they fall short well, I, I can't get into the details of what ah, we okay. are doing because we are working with a consultant to do this. Okay. Um, but the process that we're going through essentially is taking our, our leadership team. Mm-hmm. We're taking uh, the time away from work mm-hmm. to actually sit down and recognize the, the current culture. Mm-hmm. to uh, go through a process that is uh, called unfreezing. So here mm-hmm. are the things that we're doing. Let's acknowledge these are the things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. At least let's acknowledge these things are problems and own them. Mm-hmm. Okay. If we agree that these are, are non-productive for us, let's make sure that we understand that. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's now talk about what, call, what, what different things do we want? How do we want to operate mm-hmm. in the future? Mm-hmm. What type of culture do we want to have in the future? And let's work on locking those things in. And let's document them. Let's measure them. Let's make sure that we understand the, the target that we want to try and hit. However, this is not a race. This is a journey, right? This is not a go off site for two days and you're done. Developing and unfreezing and refreezing cultures is something that's going to happen over time. And you're always going to be working on it to a degree. Well, let's go back to the idea of how we synthesize ideas and take different points of view. Many of us were raised with the belief that leaders have answers. I'm supposed to walk in the room and be the smart one. To acknowledge that my role has changed, it's easy again to say the words. It feels bad when I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that we actively do now is basically tell folks, if you don't know, ask. 
at all levels. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the answer, then ask. Mm-hmm. If you do know the answer, then tell somebody. Right? There's not an expectation that mm-hmm. everybody has all the answers, and even at the CEO level. And yet, even for myself, I, I say those words and I coach people all the time. I still want to have the answers. So how yeah. do I unwind myself? Yeah. And that is the journey. Yeah. Right? And you, you really can't be afraid to ask. I've seen this and I've actually been in situations where I've had to ask. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in our environment, we are sometimes very technical. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of jargon thrown around. There's a lot of acronyms thrown around. And I'm looking around the table like, I don't know what the hell they just said. You've got a bunch of PhD scientists, right? Yeah. So I, I need to, I need you to de-jargonize what you just mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. And once they do that, oh, okay, I understand what you're talking about. Now we can move on. Mm-hmm. Right? But I've seen a lot of people that will sit there in silence and in pain. I don't know what they're talking about. This is not good. The problem with that is if you don't understand, then you can't add value to the conversation. If you can't add value to the conversation, you're going to sit there silent. After being in a meeting where you're silent once or twice, you won't be invited back. You hope you won't be invited back. Well, the bad thing is if you're not invited back, then you potentially aren't able to contribute to a solution. Yeah, losing your voice at the table is... Yes. And yet, as leaders, this is part of that deprogramming. Right. Desensitizing to, I'm supposed to have the answers. Yeah. Ironically, one of the biggest issues that we have, and this is probably uniform across every company, uh, one of the, the, the toughest things that we have to unfreeze is the fact that we are in 2018 and we're totally distracted. And so one of the basic concepts that we've embraced um, that everybody has heard, but they don't really follow through is be here now. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're in a meeting, if I'm talking to you, be engaged with me. Be here now. Mm-hmm. Right? Put down your phone. Stop with all the other external distractions mm-hmm. and listen to me. Look me in the eye. Mm-hmm. Give me feedback. After we're done, you can go on to your other things. But while we're having this time, while I gave you my valuable time to meet with you, mm-hmm. be present with me and let's engage in a meaningful conversation. How much do people struggle with that? It is very difficult, especially because it's so easy to get distracted. I, I've been in meetings with my team, and, and uh, my, my uh, IT security team is pro- were probably the worst folks. They would come into a meeting with their laptops, and the meeting would start, and they would start typing. And you would assume that they are typing notes from the meeting. But I would say that as much typing as they were doing, they were doing other work or on the Internet or doing something else. They were mm-hmm. obviously not engaged in the meeting. Their ears would perk up when they would hear, hear something that, that maybe interests them, but the value that they lost is understanding the, the, the connection between what somebody else is doing and how they may be plugged in. Mm-hmm. Well, and even add to that then what we know about how brains work, we are likely to be distracted even if not looking at devices. Right. So just learning how, how to build focus. Right. And I've also found that uh, when you have external distractions, whether it is a, a cell phone or computer or mm-hmm. even because you're trying to do too many things at once. You, people believe that they can be successful in multitasking. When I started at Battelle, um, got involved in a project where we had uh, 50 concurrent uh, work streams. 
Mm-hmm. And what we found was that we had 50 things being done subpar and nothing was getting done. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we ended up doing was stopping all 50 work streams, prioritizing to the top five, getting those top five things done, and then working through the list. And if we would have started that a year earlier, we would have been done a, a year earlier because mm-hmm. of the, the churn that was going on with the, the 50 concurrent work streams. And yet, again, it comes out of culture often. I can't say no, or I can't say no to these people, but then there were dependencies. There's that. There was, I can't, I cannot do this because if I do, I'll fail and you're going to fire me. And, mm-hmm. and there's just pressure to get stuff done, but we weren't getting things done. And so there's this interpretation that uh, effort equals uh, progress. Yeah. And that's not true. Yeah, I can't tell you how many places I've heard. We've got good people working hard. And they are good and they are working hard. That's a true statement. Working hard on the right stuff. Yes. Or what have you really got done? Mm-hmm. Hours, hundreds of hours towards a project and it's still stuck on 80% complete is not getting things done. So be here now. What other factors or what other tools can you share for our listeners to think about changing culture or being more effective? Ironically, something that I really hadn't plugged into, and that was that your mood is a indicator as to how people will react. So if you're down, if you're low, if you're in a bad mood and you go into a meeting, that's going to set the tone for everybody else. So say more about that, because we talked a little bit in the intro about soft skills and Often, especially as senior executives, we assume that those feelings are for somebody else, not me. And I don't have to pay. I shouldn't even acknowledge them, let alone manage them. That's that's what young girls do or something. No, that's that's true for everybody. If you go into a meeting or a situation where, again, you're viewed as the leader uh, and you set a pretty big shadow. Mm-hmm. People are looking to you for guidance and you're in a terrible mood and you're, you're biting people's heads off and, and you're really setting a caustic mm-hmm, environment. Mm-hmm. Well, that is detrimental to everything that's going on within your organization. That's just not good. It would be better if you, you know, the, the commercial is, you know, go have a Snickers, right? You're not <laughs> saying, um, yeah. do something to change your mood. Go walk around the block. Do something that, that is going to elevate your mood. Chocolate. And then come back. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point I think and I'm not good at reciting statistics off the top of my head but I think it's 85% of the success differential for people who would say be equally skilled is emotional intelligence yeah so so you and I apply for a job we've just graduated from X college and have X years of experience the one of us who has more emotional intelligence so identify emotions manage emotions identify other people's emotions and relate Biggest differentiator, or one of the biggest differentiators. And and understanding that, understanding Mm -hmm. that your your emotional intelligence, the the mood that you have within your situation does have an impact. Uh, A lot of folks are tone deaf to the fact that um, the way that I I react, the way that my mood is, um, Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't have an impact, and it really does. Well, especially, as you said, when it's followed by actions that are unsupportive. Right. Versus engaging. Right. I've done my own little mini experiments, just paying attention to how do I respond 
to clients and colleagues who are incredibly supportive versus unsupportive. And it's amazing how much, and I think I'm immune to it, but it's amazing how I respond to a compliment or positive supportive colleagues versus the the cranky one that I know is cranky. Right. But I still don't want to face someone who's cranky every day. Yeah. I tend to start just about every meeting I have with just understanding um, how the folks are in the meeting, how they're mm-hmm. doing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I will ask that specific question, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And I'll go through everybody in the table just mm-hmm. to uh, kind of icebreak and understand mm-hmm. what's going mm-hmm. on. It takes five minutes. It's not that much overhead from a meeting mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. that before you get into the meat of what you're trying to do. And it really uh, helps you to understand who's in the room, understanding your audience, mm-hmm. uh, what may be going on with them. Um, is there something that you need mm-hmm. to do differently? Um, and then really jump into your content at that point. It just to, to support that, the, the alleviating misunderstandings. So, you know, especially as, as fairly experienced folks, we've got parents who are aging and having to deal with all that stuff. We've got children who are becoming adults or teenagers. So doing that check-in and hearing, I'm not 100% here because... What I heard earlier today, my mom has to mention I'm really struggling with how to navigate her health, right? Those things pull us emotionally, and someone could attribute my disconnection as I don't support them, I'm whatever description you want to attach to me. Right. And in fact, it's just I'm worried about mom. Right. Right. So it's a beautiful tool. Yeah. And, and you know, you have uh, situations where you'll tell somebody if they're physically sick, if you have a cold, mm-hmm. don't come into the office. We don't mm-hmm. want you to get the rest of the uh, the team sick. The same thing is true with mental, right? So if you're not fully engaged with us, maybe take some time to get yourself mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of difference when you take a little bit of time for yourself. Uh, yeah. And... Rarely do I hear an executive say that. Yeah. Take a mental health day. Address whatever it is that is of issue. Absolutely. And that's that's the other component that um, we're really also focusing on is take care of you. Mm-hmm. If you're not your best self, not only mentally but physically, are you doing things to make yourself healthy physically? Are you mm-hmm. exercising? Mm-hmm. Are you uh, looking at your diet? Um, if you're not physically healthy and taking mm-hmm. steps to become physically healthy, it also can have an impact on your work life. Oh, it absolutely does, right? You're tired. You're tired equals cranky. Right. What's the statistic? And again, I, I sh- shouldn't cite these, but someone who is sleep deprived equals someone who the competence level is equal to someone who's drunk. Yeah, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but the, when you exercise in the morning, it actually gives you energy throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you are tired, but it will give you energy throughout the day. It's a different different kind of tired. Right. So we are going to take a break here. We will be back momentarily with David White, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. So welcome back, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You are joining David White, the CIO of Battelle Memorial Institute, and Maureen Metcalf. So David... During the break, we were talking about how you got where you got and who helped you. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So I believe that my path to where I'm at as a chief information officer for a major organization was non-traditional. Okay. Um, I've been asked on many occasions, well, how did you get where you 
how'd you map out your career and get where mm-hmm. you're, you're at today? And, and the answer is, I didn't, right? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's disappointing to people who think there's a straight path. Yeah, it's not. And it's very difficult to, to even imagine um, that there is. I can give you a, a prescription for if you do all of these things, you're going to end up in this role. That role won't even exist in 10 years. Life doesn't happen that way, and it's very difficult Mm -hmm. for, uh, I I can't really uh, demonstrate to anybody that's actually done that and Mm -hmm. been successful. What you can do, though, is prepare yourself for that next level position. So it is uh, gaining different experiences, getting a baseline um, set of education, and really open yourself up for that next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I got where I'm at today. It did um, involve um, a couple mentors. Okay. When I started my professional career, I worked in, I started actually in the mailroom in the state of Ohio Treasury. And I worked my way from the mailroom up to a, uh, a director position uh, within the Treasury over a 10-year period. That's a pretty steep climb. And I I got help along the way. And mm-hmm. the person that was probably most instrumental to my career path was the treasurer, Ken Blackwell. Okay. And a lot of that was because I reached out to him and said, hey, mm-hmm. I'm interested in doing different things. It's an interesting story. Um, I started working in the treasury in 1987 under the Democratic administration. And that was back when Bill Clinton was coming into office, and mm-hmm. the treasurer at the time was a woman named Mary Ellen Withrow. And Mary Ellen supported Al Gore, not Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, Al became the vice president, and Mary Ellen, um, after uh, working f- to get them elected, was selected to become the U.S. treasurer. Mm. And so that created a vacancy in the treasurer's um, office. And the governor at the time, George Voinovich, had the um, authority to appoint a replacement. And he selected Ken Blackwell, an African-American politician out of Cincinnati, to replace uh, Mary Ellen Withrow. But he was a Republican. Hmm. So you had an office full of Democrats and uh, were bringing a Republican to be treasurer. I had just finished my undergrads, uh, undergraduate studies at school and uh, was working as a cashier in the treasurer's office at the time and really wanted to see what else I could do. And so I took a chance and mm-hmm. requested a meeting with Ken Blackwell, a gentleman named Greg Veer, who was the chief of staff, and a gentleman named Bill Guy, who was the deputy treasurer and uh, wanted to make my case for doing something different. I was not able to get a meeting with Ken Blackwell, but I did get a meeting with Bill Guy and also um, Greg Veer. And basically told him, you don't know me, but here's who I am. I just finished my undergrad studies. I have a, a, a desire to do more, and I would love for you to take a chance on me if there was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, they did. And so when there was an opportunity uh, for an open uh, supervisor's position, I was given the opportunity to take the role and moved into that and moved on every year into something Mm -hmm. different. So cashier supervisor, uh, certified cash manager with the Treasury, project manager with the Treasury. And when I finished the project management role, I was selected uh, from went from a supervisor, project manager, cash manager into a director. And at that point, um, Ken uh, really was directing kind of my career from that point. Mm. And so he really was investing in me, giving me some personal time, giving me some coaching. 
So here's a question for you, and I have a personal bias. Someone reaches out, say two people reach out. One says, hey, I'll do whatever you want. I just want an opportunity. And the other one says, I've got X degree and I want to do this. Which one do you say yes to? It depends. It really does. So you have to, you can't, not everybody's created equal and not every Mm -hmm. opportunity or, or situation is equal. You have to evaluate each individually. So I'll tell, I'll answer that by um, telling you a story about uh, one of the situations I was in. Mm -hmm. I was working in the Office of Budget and Management and had to hire a web developer. Mm -hmm. Had two candidates. I had one young man who was your prototypical graduate from college. He had great pedigree. He had a great GPA, had participated in all the right clubs. It was exactly what you'd want to see for a young man coming into your organization. Mm -hmm. I had a young lady who we were interviewing who had also graduated from college, but it wasn't, uh, the school was not as prestigious. The Mm -hmm. grades were not as good. And she came in the interview dressed all black and goth, had (laughs) jet black hair, black nails, and was just, I mean, the most goth person you would even see. And I was like, okay, which one do you choose? Well, we interviewed both. And after the interview, I selected the young lady. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, it's because I felt like she would be a better fit within the organization. And I just got a better gut feel with her. I'm happy to say that she's still in a role, a very high-level role with the state of Ohio, and she manages the web presence for the entire state and has been doing it for 10 years now. And I'm guessing her fashion sense has evolved. She has evolved, (laughs) but she still has that quirkiness about her that made Mm -hmm. her an excellent web developer. Well, and quirkiness is beautiful when harnessed. Yes, when not harnessed, not so beautiful. Yes. Still have a very good relationship mm-hmm. with her today. And mm-hmm. um, again, I, I consider that one of my best hires ever. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how do you decide? I'm assuming people approach you periodically to mentor them. How do you decide who, if there are more than you have, have having a highly intense job, you don't necessarily have all the time in the world to mentor. Yeah. How do you pick and what's your approach? I tend to want to have a conversation with that person to understand Mm -hmm. what what are they really trying to achieve? Are they trying to connect with me because they looked at our website and can see me out on the website and say, oh, that's a good person to connect with? Mm -hmm. Or do they really identify with me, my story, and what they're really trying to do because there's some similarities or Mm -hmm. is there something that really gives us a good connection. Those are the folks that I really like to to work with and connect with. And that's kind of how I also decide to get involved in different organizations. I like to do things that really are meaningful to me. Uh, One of the organizations that I'm involved with, I'm I'm an avid library uh, user, public library user. Okay. And so I sit on the Columbus Public Library um, CIO Advisory Council because I want to make sure that the library is not only here for me, but also here for my kids and a lot of folks in the future. So I want to make sure that I'm able to contribute to the success of the library uh, because these are publicly funded uh, entities and uh, a lot of times you don't get an opportunity to uh, provide this level of input unless you're actually working as an employee. So this this allows me or gives me the opportunity to give them some of my insight without actually having to be an employee. 
Well, and I love that that also supports what I think is a value of yours around diversity. Absolutely. And our public library is amazing in in its quality and the access it provides. It is. It is. Uh, it's been rated the top library in the country for a number of years. However, I believe it could be better. Okay. When you think about the library, and I love our, our libraries, it, it, it provides a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've, over the last couple of years, have gone through a lot of uh, rebuilding just to make the physical space better. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with the change in fewer books, more computers. Absolutely. So it becomes almost an online library. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I've really asked them to push for is... Um, I'd love the library to give me the same experience that I get when I go to Amazon or Audible.com. And unfortunately, that's a challenge, not just from a technology perspective, but it's, it's, it's uh, non-technical based. It's privacy based. Mm. And so the constraints that they have are around the rules that are, def- are, are developed to define how the library can engage with the public. And so you have a library card, but there are actual laws that say that they cannot use that information in certain ways. Mm. And so there's only so much that they can do, uh, unlike a, a, uh, an Amazon or, or a, mm. another uh, for-profit entity. And so my question to the library is, if I wanted you to give me that Amazon-like experience from your catalog, your user mm-hmm. base, mm-hmm. why can you not provide it? And they said, well, you know, the laws say that we can only do so much. And my next question kind of shocked him was, well, what if I gave you implicit authority to do that? I told you I wanted to do this. I'll mm-hmm. give you authority to do that. So you can now recommend books for me and recommend Audible books. And you can take my presence mm-hmm. and you can, you can use that for defining how you use the big data. I was going to say the other is what I do gives valuable information to the library for not me personally but what the broad range of customers do right gives the library invaluable information for updating their collection where do they invest all of that stuff absolutely so if i gave you permission would you do that Mm -hmm. and and that actually kind of had them scratching their heads like we've never thought about it from that perspective and so now we're having a different conversation uh, because I can bring in technology solutions easily to solve this issue mm-hmm. but really it becomes how do I bridge the uh, the legal gaps mm-hmm. that we have out there and what you can actually do within this space so I hear mentoring you've served on boards yes what else have you done to develop yourself? Because, again, you, you had a quick rise, non-traditional. You went to community college and then completed your degree after a gap. Yes. So your path was, again, when we look at people who were successful, we assume without more information often, my parents paid for my college, I went straight through, I had all this stuff. You didn't. So what what kept you going and how did you make the choices? Again, I just kind of followed my, my desire, what things that made me happy. Um, okay. After working at the Treasury, though, the other thing that kind of motivated me was my wife and family. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to support them. And so you had to uh, figure out a way to to continue to earn for your family and and Mm -hmm. make sure that they're taken care of. Um, It didn't stop me from taking risks, though. 
1999, um, after rising to a pretty high level within the Treasury, the director role, I decided to take on a consulting role in Washington, D.C., and work in D.C. while my family was back here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, an experience that was invaluable to me, but I took that risk, and my mm-hmm. wife supported me through that. Sometimes you have to take those risks in order to mm-hmm. really grow as a, an individual. I spent 12 years with big consulting firms, and that was 12 years straight on the road. And it takes a toll, but there's choices and consequences. Correct. I paid the price of being away from home for 12 years, but learned a ton. Yeah, I only did it for four, so good for you. Well, but you had a spouse and kids. Yes. I never had children. so And it, it impacts marriages, or at least it did on mine. I but I am divorced and you are not. So (laughs) (laughs) you navigated it better than I did. Yeah. And again, we all come to where we are with our set of skills and challenges. Yeah. So thank you so much. If someone wanted to learn more about you or your path, how would they learn about you? Well, I'm... uh very present on our, our website and okay. uh, can be contacted through that. Okay. I'm very uh, available through the community, so okay. I'm very accessible. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out, uh, more than welcome to uh, reach out and talk to them. Would you share your website address? Sure. It is www.battelle.org. And I'm on the, um, the leadership team website. Thank you. And this is Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We love to hear your feedback. So please email me at info at metcalf-associates.com or find us on Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. And as a reminder, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about finding one thing that you've heard from David that you could either put into action immediately or to update your mindset. And I would encourage you as we've talked about culture and emotional intelligence, understanding soft skills, mentoring people, decisions he's made on his career path. What have you heard today to shape your behavior or shape your thinking? We encourage you to continue to update so that you don't hit a point where you really need to update a lot. Have a great day.